You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Good morning, Pastor Joshua Lau. Glad he's here, Pastor Daniel Cooper, and all the good pastors here. All right, do me a favor. Uh, We're going to take a short break from our uh, Acts series. I hope you guys are enjoying the Acts series. Uh, We're going to take a short little break. We're going to focus our attention for the next couple of weeks on the story of Christmas. So we've created a beautiful series called Let Heaven and Nature Sing. By the way, um, there was a group of ladies, um, and I think men too as well, who have diligently been working for the last two, three months decorating the entire church. The church looks absolutely beautiful. In fact, um, I think a while back when they were planning on how they would decorate the entire church, they were thinking about what, what, what should be the theme And in fact, this is the theme. I didn't create this theme, this series. They actually did um, based on a couple of passages and a song. And I thought it would be fitting that we would um, do the same, that we would focus our attention for the next couple of weeks on let heaven and nature sing. And, And basically, what is heaven and what is nature singing? They are singing of the coming of the king through Christ Jesus. And for the next four weeks, we are celebrating a king. We're not celebrating gifts. We're not celebrating Santa. We're not celebrating what we've created, what we can do. We are celebrating a living God who's come as a king. So today we're going to talk about that king. We're going to talk about the promise of the king because so many people um, get, get confused about how we've gotten to the place that we've gotten in our Christian faith. Why do we believe that Jesus is Lord? Why do we believe he's king? And we believe it because he's been promised to us. He's been promised by the prophets in the Old Testament. So we're going to look at one of those prophecies in Isaiah chapter 9. The title of today's sermon is A Promise for Hope or A Promise of Hope. So if you would do me a favor, turn to Isaiah chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have a Bible for you. There's a Bible in the pew back in front of you. You can grab that Bible and turn to page 573. And by all means, if, if, if you would like to keep that Bible, go ahead, keep that Bible. That's our gift to you so that you can continue studying God's word along with us. A promise of hope found in Isaiah chapter 9. And the beauty of Isaiah chapter 9 is that while we celebrate, while the world celebrates materialism and wealth, we celebrate, we sing along with creation. We rejoice with creation, the triumphal entry of the king as a child. While the unbelieving world finds fulfillment and happiness in the exchange of gifts, We sing of an unspeakable joy of the gift giver who gives us hope, who gives us peace, who gives us joy. We, despite living in an unbelieving world, believe that this king born as a child has conquered sin and death and you and I have victory in Christ. Therefore, we can rest that God has conquered our enemies, which are his enemies. And we look at Isaiah 9, the truth of God's word, realizing that the promise of hope in the person of Jesus Christ 
has been spoken about years before. And you and I should be happy. We should be joyful. We should be excited knowing that God has been faithful to his promises. We have seen him be faithful. And not only that, we're going to read that he was faithful to Isaiah and the people of Israel. And we know for a fact that when we read the New Testament, Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy. However, but... I know for many of us in this room, don't necessarily feel the hope that the Bible promises. Many of us in this room are reminded during the holiday season of pain, grief, hurt. During the holiday season is a reminder that there are loved ones that will not gather together with us because they have, they have passed away. For many of us, the holiday season is a reminder of fractured relationships that were once mended and, and together and, and we celebrated together and now they're broken. Many of us in this room are once again reminded that the relationships are not a reality though we have desired it for a long time and we have gone through a whole year and we're feeling the pressure, we're feeling the weight of our singleness, and, and we're, we're wondering, God, I can't find joy and peace as I look at the world, and everyone seems to be in a relationship, and there are many of us in this room who for the Christmas holidays are just painful, and there aren't words to describe why they're painful. They just are. So how are we to have hope? How can we have hope when we don't feel the hope? How can we rejoice with the people around us who celebrate the king when the realities and the present circumstances of our life overwhelm us like tidal waves? How are we supposed to hope? When we think about our political climate, when we think about our culture, think about our world, tyranny and violence are the theme. Strife and political dissentment is the reality of our life. How are we supposed to have hope in our politicians and our governments when we feel the weight of their sin? How can we have hope? It's difficult, isn't it? But the reality is sometimes, in fact, most of the times, the hope that we ought to have sometimes doesn't necessarily change what we feel, but just inform us on how we should think. In the midst of the anxiety, I like to call that the hum. I have a hum. Usually if you hear me say I have a hum, it means like, there's something brewing in my bottom of the pit. I'm just anxious and fearful. And, and how are we supposed to navigate those feelings? Well, we navigate it with informing our mind of biblical truth where our mind can tell our feelings, this is not how God designed it to be, but we have a truth knowing that what God's word is true and it would inform us on how we should feel, how we should think. And despite 
the chaos and the violence and the tyranny, despite the present realities of our sin, despite the present realities of other people's sin and our culture and our world and our, and our division, despite all those things, we will find hope. We'll find hope in a person and not in a system. Right? When you think about the Old Testament prophecies of Jesus coming, all you can do, imagine those people, right? Think about it. The vast majority of the people in the Old Testament have experienced oppression and violence, and the prophets were calling them to repentance and hope, right? Repent from your sin. God has judged you and condemned you because you have sinned. And then he says, well, have hope that he will save you from the very thing that you created in your own life. He's going to redeem your circumstance. He's going to redeem the oppression. But you have to have hope and belief and faith that he's going to do it. Think about them, that they were looking forward to the cross. And you and I look back to the cross, realizing that he's made promises in the Old Testament And if he was faithful to the Old Testament believers, then surely he can be faithful to us because he's done it before and he'll do it again and again. And then you think about the story of Mary who sings a song of praise that God would look at her, a woman who would bear the son of God and and usher in and in her womb, the, the king of glory, and she would magnify God, not because she's perfect, because he is perfect, and she would magnify not the gift, but the gift giver, who is the gift to the world. And then you think about the, the, the shepherds who, who in that society weren't considered to be noble men, but that a choir of angels would come and announce the coming king. When you think about all these things, All that you can do and say is that God, in his grace and mercy, loved us that he would do this. Therefore, we can hope in the midst of our problems, in the face of our obstacles. That's the true meaning of hope, despite what we feel. So join me, Isaiah chapter 9, first seven verses. And we're asking the question, where can we find our hope during difficult and dark seasons in our lives? Where do we find that hope? Especially when we feel the necessity to change our circumstances and establish a better world for our children. Isaiah chapter 9 tells us where we can find that hope, where we can find that joy. Read with me verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Laphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil, verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior 
is in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And this is a most famous verse. We quote this all the time. You see this everywhere. Verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And this is my favorite line in the entire chapter of nine because it's so powerful. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I'll explain why that's my favorite line. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Just get excited. It's like, let's go to war. Sorry. We're a very reserved church here. So where do we find our hope? How is Israel supposed to find its hope? Well, why does Israel need to find hope? Let's think about this, where we find ourselves in Isaiah 9. The reason why Isaiah is prophesying of this child is because the people of Israel find themselves in a difficult, dark, and gloomy situation. When we arrive to Isaiah 9, the people of God have experienced great calamity. They have experienced great oppression, in fact, 2 Kings chapter 15 talks about this oppression, right? 2 Kings chapter 15 verse 29 says that the northern tribes of Israel have been captured by the king of Assyria because Pekah, who was the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Therefore, the king of Assyria comes and he takes over much of the land much of the people in the northern kingdom and takes them into captivity. Not all of them, but many of them. And this is what Isaiah 8.22 says. The verse right before Isaiah 1.9. This is what Isaiah 8.22 says. Isaiah 8.22 says that God has pronounced judgment against Israel because of their their disobedience, because they have followed after idols, and because the king has led them astray, so God has pronounced judgment against them. And this is the judgment, right? Isaiah 8, 22, if you look at it, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. God has pronounced judgment on the people of Israel. And then some people say, oh, that's a mean God. Why would God ever do that? God is loving and caring. He doesn't punish. He doesn't discipline his children. He shouldn't do that. That's not real love. Love doesn't discipline children. You can correct them. Sometimes. When they're in the mood. And don't do it in public. Because you got people in there that would Correct you and how you're correcting your children. God is not loving and gracious. <laughs> Lies. Cap. That is a word. 
the young people would know that word, cap. Cap is a young person's, or it's an urban word meaning uh, lie. When you say no cap means no lie. So I said cap and the high schoolers laughed and the young adults, the yammers knew exactly what I was talking about. I don't know why I said that. I lost my train of thought, to be honest with you. That's fine, we're okay. Rabbit trails, we like rabbits. Um, yes, I think I got it, and I'm not gonna make believe until I get it. Um, yes, so, back to this. The people have disobeyed God, and many people would view these chapters and say, God, God is not just and fair, right, and loving because he disciplines his children. Well, we know that to be a lie. God disciplines those he loves. But you see the beauty of Isaiah 9? Look at verse 1, right? Verse 822, there's a pronouncement of judgment. But verse 1 in chapter 9 says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he has brought them into contempt in the land of Zebulun and the land of Nathalie. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea. God, though he disciplines his children, promises them that he will bring them out of that discipline into glory. So what we see in Isaiah chapter nine, verse one, right? That God is going to bring his people into glory. The promise of Isaiah nine is The promise of hope is that while you experience great darkness, while you experience great um, adversity, while you experience oppression, while you are in the midst of darkness, God has for you glory. God will take you out of your circumstances to glorify himself, to glorify his son by the power of his spirit and bring you into the way of glory. God will do this, not you. God will do it. He will make a way because he's good, right, and just. He will bring you out of that dark place and he will show you the light. Who's the light? Jesus. In fact, Matthew in the gospel, Matthew chapter four, quotes the exact passage. Matthew chapter four says, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Why did God do this? Why did Jesus do this? Verse 14 says, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. When we view this dark, gloomy world that the people of Israel are experiencing, we know that the prophet Isaiah has prophesied and says that this Jesus, who is the light of the world, will be the light for his people and he will bring them out of darkness into a marvelous light where they will see him and know him, experience him. They will see with their own eyes who this king is. He will do it because he's faithful. Where can the people find their hope during gloomy and dark times? They can find their hope in the promise of a king. 
The New Testament says, Isaiah prophesied this 700 years ago. Think about that. Think about that. The people of God had to wait 700 years to see the fulfillment of that prophecy. And some of you might say, wait a minute, why would he do that? He would do it so that it would build character, endurance in us, in the people of God. To wait. Hold on. Don't give up. He's not done with you yet. Your current circumstances, the issues of your life are not indicative of who God is. The problems and obstacles that the people that got to face, the problems and obstacles that you face are just opportunities for God to redeem them so that he can show you that he can do it. That's the promise. That's why they had to wait 700 years so that they would build endurance, that it would build faith. So often in our culture now, we want it now. I mean, think about it, that's the whole point of Amazon. You click it and get it now. Drone comes, lands in front of you, and you get it immediately. Instant gratification. And that can be hurtful to the body of Christ. When we see our culture moving towards that direction, that can be harmful for us because then we, we begin to build expectations on God that he's has, he has no desire to meet. He wants us to wait. Wait for the promise. And that's what the people of God have to do. Wait 700 years to see the fulfillment of the promise. Darkness turns into light. The pattern of God's redemptive plan, according to verse 2 in Isaiah, is to establish a government to be revealed to the people of God who lived in darkness. Therefore, the light, who we know is Jesus Christ, is to be shown to the people of Israel that this is their king. This is why Jesus says, I am the light, right? John chapter 12, 46 says, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus is the light so that you and I can see him clearly in the dark. So we find our hope in dark and gloomy circumstances and the hope is this light in darkness and Matthew says in the gospel say that this light is Jesus so therefore we have a great joy right verses three to five talk about this great joy because light has been shown in darkness the people now have reason to hope What's the reason for hope? God gets the victory over God's adversaries. That's the whole point, right? Why do they have hope? Because a king is coming. What is this king going to do? He's going to give them great joy. How is he going to give them great joy? By conquering God's enemies. Remember, these people were oppressed by other nations. Ravaged by war and violence. And God is gonna give them joy and hope that he will conquer their enemies. And you and I know that that's also a fulfillment for us. Because who is our adversary? Satan, death, and sin. Therefore, our hope, our joy, 
comes from knowing that the promise fulfilled in Isaiah is in Jesus where he has defeated sin and death, right? This is why the gospel, I mean, the New Testament says, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Why? Because Jesus Christ has conquered death and sin. I love this illustration. I don't know where I got it. I just love it, right? I think about the picture all the time. When I think about the conquering of, of death and sin and Satan and all the demons, I think of that moment where David wants to fight Goliath and so many people are in our churches that say, all right, we're David and we're gonna fight Goliath and we're gonna win and we're David, we're strong and we got three rocks, hope, love, and joy and we're gonna throw that out there, whatever. And the truth is, that's a lie, right? We're not David. We're the people of Israel hiding, crying, afraid because we cannot conquer Goliath. Who is David? Jesus. Who's our Goliath? Death, sin, and Satan. Who conquers Goliath? Jesus conquers Goliath. You and I have a hope. You and I have a joy that David, a picture of Jesus, conquers our Goliath. Death, sin, and you and I can rejoice in knowing that this victory is not a victory that we accomplished. It was a victory accomplished by a child. Jesus gets the victory over sin and death for you and me. Imagine that. You and I, sinful, wayward, and God would say, I will do anything for them. So I will go and I will get the victory and I will free them from their captivity just as I've done before. I'll do it again, and I'll show an unbelieving world that I am worthy to be praised. In fact, the prophet Isaiah points to a time in which Israel has experienced a great victory. If you look down at verse 4, it talks about the people of God, when this child will be born, when they will receive their victory, they will actually celebrate as though they were celebrating a battle that they've won. But he draws their attention to the day of Midian. Of Midian. We know this story. This is the story of Gideon. How does Gideon and the army win the battle? He wins it with 300 people. He starts off with 32,000 men, and God tells him, you got to do this to get rid of all these men. And next thing you know, 32,000 men turn into 300 men. And God gave the victory to God's people on that day when the nations, when the horde of, of nations were coming against the people of God. And God won the battle with 300 men. What is the prophet Isaiah saying? The prophet Isaiah is saying is that this king who's coming, we're going to celebrate his victory like the day of Midian when the obstacles were too big, when the unbelieving world was too big for us to conquer. 
when sin and death seems to be overwhelming our hearts and our minds, that, that it, it makes us anxious and fearful. Like on the day of Midian, when the, when, the, when, the stat, when the number of men are stacked against us, and there's only 300 of us, God is gonna win the battle against adversity, against overwhelming adversity. And he's reminding the people, remember when God did that? Remember when he won that battle? When everyone said we couldn't win, he won the battle. Like the day of Midian. God is going to receive the glory when he defeats death and sin in our life. Like on the day of Midian. And you and I are going to celebrate. We are celebrating that he's already done it. The sin in your life and in my life that seem to be the thing that we think about the most, we have an assurance from Isaiah 9 that says he has won it. Why are you fearful and anxious what God has already conquered? Why are you overwhelmed with the troubles of this world that God has already conquered? Walk in your victory. Walk in step with the king. He's marching forward in victory. And you and I did nothing for it. We just stood there. Look pretty. We get to celebrate the birth of this king as though we were in battle, as though we were fighting, and we were no longer the spoils. We were no longer trampled on. We win the battle, not because we did anything, because he did it all. And that's the beauty and joy that we have as believers that Christ has defeated sin and death and you and I can celebrate. You and I have hope. You and I have joy knowing that this king has defeated sin and death. And not only that, not only can we celebrate this king, but now we can see the source of our joy. We get to see the source of our joy. Look at verse six. The source of our joy, the person who's gonna win this battle, the promise of hope is a person. For to us a child is born, to a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name. This is beautiful. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This child has a name. This king has a name. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You want to find hope in chaos? You want to find the source of a Christian's joy? It's found in the character of Jesus Christ. Jesus is a wonderful counselor. Think about that, that Jesus is a wonderful counselor. He is infinitely wise unto himself, right? He is so wise that he doesn't need the counsel of, of us. That's who he is. 
And if you and I need wisdom, we go to the wonderful counselor. That's what James says. If you lack wisdom, ask of God. Why? Isaiah 9 says, because he's a wonderful counselor. You need guidance? Go to Jesus. You need wisdom? Go to Jesus. You have questions, concerns, comments. You can email them to Jesus. He is wise. And not only is he wise, he's a mighty God. Let's not get confused, ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, we serve a living God. We serve a living God. Other religions serve dead men and women. Other religions serve and worship fake gods. We serve a living God. You know why they call him mighty God? Because he's powerful. He has all the power. He has so much power that when he ultimately, in Revelation, conquers Satan, demons, and his enemies, death and sin, he does it by the power of his word. There's no fighting that we have to do because we serve a mighty God. If he has the power to bring creation and the universe into existence, he has the power to do the things that you need him to do in your life. Not because you need it, because he gets the glory. And not only is he a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, he was, he's an everlasting father. What does it mean that he's an everlasting father? It means that he cares for his people. It means that as a father cares for his children, Jesus, this king, cares for you and me. This title given to, to Near East uh, kings is a title that is actually given to Jesus because of his character. He's a father. He's not only a warrior. He's not only wise, but he cares. That means that he's entrenched deeply in your heart, in your mind. Where? In the darkest parts of your life. The pain, the hurt, the guilt, the shame that you feel. He cares for those things. He's concerned for you. He doesn't look down from heaven and says, oh, poor kid. He's in the mess with you to provide you wisdom, to provide you the knowledge that he has the power to change that because he loves you. And finally, what does Isaiah say? He's the prince of peace. Another characteristic about Jesus that gives us hope this morning is knowing that he is the prince of peace. Jesus says, peace I leave you. My peace I give you. I do not give it to you as the world gives it. Do not let your heart be troubled. The peace that God gives is actually hope for our future that there will be ultimate peace in a new heavens and a new earth. And yet now he provides peace to us in our trials and our difficulties. What a beautiful testimony that this child, this king, is going to bring peace for who? For the people of God. When? When they're feeling oppressed, overwhelmed. That's what's happening in Isaiah. Oppressed, defeated, 
And he's going to bring peace. Why will he do this? Why is he going to establish this great kingship and this kingdom? Well, he's going to do it. Look at that last sentence like I told you. Why will he do these things? Because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Zeal means jealous. What is God jealous for? One, for his glory. Two, our worship. So the reason why he's going to do these things, the reason why he promises us hope, so that we in return can say, you did it. He brings us hope and he gives us joy so that we can tell an unbelieving world, he did it. The reason why we have hope is that we have identified the king. His name is Jesus. We have identified his kingdom of wealth. It's not prosperity. It's not the house and the money that God provides us. It's actually the peace, the joy. Because it doesn't matter if you have all the money in the world and all the nice cars in the world. If you don't have joy and peace and hope, it means nothing. We are going to be part of a kingdom full of wealth. What does that mean? We get to experience the king who has joy, love, peace, patience, kindness, and self-control. We experience that wealth. We also see the nature of his kingdom. It's prophetic. He's promised it. It's secure. That means that we should have the faith to believe it. That is, it's done. It's eternal. It's forever. It's set in stone. Also, too, what we realize, the reason why we have hope is that there's power in this kingdom. And God's going to do it because he's jealous for his glory and jealous that we will worship him to do it. So where do we find hope? We don't find hope in the world. We don't find hope in the gifts. We don't find hope in the candy cane. We don't find hope in the cinnamon buns, whatever you guys do for Christmas. I only say that because, anyway, that's a tangent. We find hope. We know where hope is. Hope has a name. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And he's going to do it because he's jealous for you and me to worship him. So in response of this hope, in response of this promise, what we should do? Worship. We should worship. Isaiah 9 is a promise of hope for the people of Israel who were oppressed. Isaiah 9 is a promise of hope for us that while we experience oppression, where we experience division, pain and hurt and guilt and shame, we know he's already conquered it. So we just got to do is wait and hold on for that promise to see the reality of that promise. Hope against hope. Knowing that he has won it all and he's done it. By the power of his son who would come as a baby. That's why nature and and heaven and nature sing. Because they sing of a king who is born. Let's pray. If you're feeling anxious and fearful and overwhelmed by the Christmas holidays, why don't you take a couple of seconds and express those feelings to the Lord and express 
how you don't have hope and how you don't have peace and that you want to see and you also want to feel the hope that is provided in Isaiah 9. Offer him the questions and concerns that are deep in your heart and have the faith to believe that he cares for you in ways that are beyond words and that he would do the very thing that you need him to do because he's done it before. Father God, though we ought to celebrate with much joy and hope in the Son, the reality is that sin and death have caused us to feel anxiousness, have caused us to feel this low hum in our spirit, that our world is not getting better, it's getting worse, and and that is making us anxious. God, would you help us in this moment find peace? In this moment, would you help us find hope? And not in just the plan, but in the person of your son, Jesus. Would you do this, God, as a testimony of your faithfulness so that we, in turn, can testify to an unbelieving world that you are faithful. You do give hope. You've promised it in the Old Testament. You fulfilled it in the New, and yet we await your return. God, would you do these things in our lives? We worship the King of Kings. We worship the Lord of Lords. We worship Jesus Christ because he's good and he's faithful. And God, we thank you for sending him, even as a child. We pray this in Christ's name and the people of God say, amen. This has been a message from the chapel. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about the chapel or any of our campuses, including Akron, Green, Wadsworth, Kenmore, Cuyahoga Falls, Nordonia, and Medina, please go to our website at thechapel.life.